Hey, I'm Alex Oliver, back with another episode of CD Wallet after a bit of a break. I hope you had a lovely holiday season uh, and a very happy new year. I certainly did. Thanks for asking. A lot happened in 2021. Some good, mostly bad, uh, but this being a music channel and music being the only topic I feel remotely qualified to discuss at length, I'm excited to share with you some of the records I listened to most in 2021. I'm very pleased to say that, in my opinion, there was far more good than bad in that regard. And yes, as you may have guessed, the thumbnail for this video is a little misleading, so I'll just get that out of the way and start by addressing the elephants in the room before we get into my official albums of the year list, okay? A phrase I never thought I'd utter in 2021 is, so, I was listening to the new records from Limp Biscuit and ABBA, and well, I have a few thoughts. Both acts released unlikely comeback records last year, marking the end of an especially long hiatus for ABBA, of course, and you could argue that both have enjoyed a bit of a critical reappraisal in recent years. Uh, ABBA, once regarded as the cheesiest band on the planet, are now hailed as pop geniuses, and rightfully so. And Limp Bizkit, well, no one can accuse them of compromising their artistic integrity, because they never pretended to have any in the first place. But critics and listeners alike, myself included, seem quicker to defend the new metal genre as a whole these days, and with the benefit of hindsight and being forced to witness contemporary rock radio's slow, mutated death rattle in the form of bands like Imagine Dragons, for example, we're willing to admit that, perhaps, things weren't so bad around the turn of the century. I mean, for all their faults, all Nickelback really ever wanted to do was rock, right? Is that so wrong? But I digress. Let's get one thing straight. As an appreciator of music as an art form, ABBA's Voyage and Limp Bizkit's Still Sucks were never contenders for my album of the year, not even honorable mentions. But as an appreciator of pop culture and weird novelty shit, how could I resist? They're both a lot of fun, and in completely opposite ways. ABBA take themselves way too seriously at times, forgetting what made their work in the 70s so goddamn irresistible. But even at its most melodramatic, the dense orchestral arrangements are so over the top that you just can't help but get swept up in the magic. And there's still plenty of classic ABBA moments, too. On the other end of the spectrum, Limp Bizkit is very aware of their place within the cultural zeitgeist. They know exactly what you think about them, and they remind you frequently that they don't give a fuck. Still Sucks is big, dumb fun. And holy shit does it come right out of the gate with one of Westmoreland's most monstrous riffs ever in album opener, Out of Style, which just hooked me instantly. Limp Bizkit are a joke band. Everything from their name to Wes's costumes to their first major hit in the 90s, a novelty cover of George Michael's Faith, is not meant to be taken seriously. But for me personally, my new favorite laugh-out-loud moment of Limp Bizkit's entire career might have been halfway through my first listen to Still Sucks, this newest record, when I realized they actually included an acoustic ballad cover of Don't Change by NXS. Just brilliant. Not quite so funny, though he clearly thinks he is, is Stevie Ray VH1 himself, John Mayer. I feel like he pulled an elaborate prank in 2021 and targeted me specifically, and I fell for it. I actually listened to an entire John Mayer LP, another thing I never thought I'd say. Uh, it was his latest, Sob Rock. I listened with some hesitation, some curiosity, even a little hope. I mean, he's got his defenders, including some close friends of mine, whose tastes and opinions I actually hold in pretty high esteem. Just look at this album cover. What the fuck is this? What is he doing? I knew I couldn't resist, but I also swore to God if I listened to this and it didn't sound just like Billy Squire, 
or Eddie Money or Rick Springfield, I was going to be pissed. Not at John, just at myself. And things were promising at first. Track one, Last Train Home, it rips off the likes of Toto and Steve Winwood hard with competence and what sounds like genuine affection. If you want to wrong me, then you gotta wrong me all night long. If you wanna use me, then you gotta use me till I'm gone. I'm not a fallen angel, I just fell behind. I'm out of luck and I'm out of time. John even brought in an actual legend, Don Waz, to produce most of the record. But you know, shame on me for thinking he might be able to maintain this facade for an entire LP. Save for some gorgeous production, John's back to his old schlocky self by track two. Uh, by track three, he's having a full-blown identity crisis, sounding more like Maroon 5 without any of Adam Levine's stupid but confident swagger. Track four, Why You Know Love Me, a song title that asks, is this racist? Uh, has also got me asking at this point, what the fuck is sob rock exactly? Now there's a sort of lazy island rhythm, steel guitar, a vaguely Latin-influenced lead guitar solo, so Jimmy Buffett, that's sob rock? Wait, no, now we're on Wild Blue, which sounds like Dire Straits meets, I don't know. I wanted to include a real boring D-list yacht rock band here, one that sings in a similarly monotonous, breathy tone over totally sterile production. But say what you will about bands of that ilk, at least their vocalists were competent, sometimes to a fault. So let's go with Dire Straits meets Dublay. Captain of her heart, anybody? Nah, that song kinda rules, actually. But honestly, I pity John Mayer, because he let his own bullshit get in the way of what could have been a really fun, whatever this was intended to be. Commentary on celebrity and the state of the music industry? I don't know, but whatever the case, he or his label or manager were probably like, Okay, John, you can screw around a little bit, but at the end of the day, we still need a boring-ass John Mayer record we can sell. But that's a cop-out, because Bruno Mars is basically at the same level of pop superstardom, and he pulled off a similar but way better executed retro cosplay stunt in 2021 with Silk Sonic, and the results were tremendous. But more on that a little later. Anyway, my fault for thinking I might actually enjoy a John Mayer record. Moving on, this is probably a good time to discuss a category within my annual list that gets more crowded every year. It's records released by what I'm calling my legacy acts. So these are bands that, just by virtue of having been some of my favorite recording artists for so long, anytime they put out a new record, I'm going to be excited to listen to it. And unless they make just a truly awful career killer of a record, it's probably going to make my best of the year list. But yeah, if I'm being completely honest, it's hard for me to listen to these records objectively. These bands get a significant handicap when I'm considering my favorite records of the year. Still, I'm going to try to set my personal opinion regarding the band's legacy aside and just make it about the music, at least as much as I can. Obviously, my personal taste in music remains the most important criteria, and that's inherently just super subjective. But anyway, a big part of the reason these artists do rank among my all-time favorites is because they're consistent. Take the new record from Garbage, for instance. No gods, no masters. If you like the first Garbage record from 1995, you're gonna like this one. And you're gonna like everything they did in between. They're not reinventing the wheel here, but part of what made them so great in the 90s is the fact that they were so ahead of their time. Butch Vig is such a studio rat. Everything sounds huge and amazing. There isn't a note out of place. They continue to seamlessly blend electronic elements with more conventional rock arrangements and instrumentation. This is, of course, pretty commonplace among bands today, but Garbage still has that unique X factor that gives them an instantly recognizable sound, and that's Shirley Manson. She's just such a commanding force, still delivering these dark yet beautifully hypnotic vocal melodies with the same passion she did in the 90s.
Also, being a bit of a socialist, I appreciated the choice of the slogan, No Gods, No Masters, for the title of this record. Speaking of brilliant songwriters with strong political convictions, Billy Bragg put out a fantastic new record called The Million Things That Never Happened. Again, objectivity is an exercise in futility when discussing art, but objectively speaking, I think Billy Bragg is one of the greatest living songwriters in the grand tradition of guys like Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, uh, and of course Billy's hero Woody Guthrie. Real songwriters, songwriters, and kind of folk troubadours, almost folk heroes, you know. Billy doesn't have quite the same punk ferocity he had in the 80s, even though it was basically just him and a guitar back then, and he's backed up with more full band arrangements these days. Now that doesn't mean he's any less political though. I think he's as great a thinker as he is a songwriter and he's not an asshole about it. Billy comes across as kind and well-informed, settling nicely into his role as the elder statesman of socially conscious dad rock. It's hard to get your berries in a world that doesn't care Positions I took long ago feel comfy as Kids that pull the statues down, they challenge me to see the gap between the man I am and the man I want to be. Speaking of dad rock, one of the most anticipated records of 2021 for me was Endless Arcade, the latest from Scotland's jangly power pop titans teenage fan club. The record before this, 2016's Here, was in my top five that year, so of course after almost five years I was ready for the long-awaited follow-up. This anticipation wasn't without some reservations, however, because between Here and Endless Arcade, founding member, bass player, and one of their key songwriters, Gerard Love, left the band. The result? Well, a record that was just okay, I'm afraid. It's recorded beautifully, the harmonies are still tight, Norman Blake can still write a pleasant enough melody, but let's be honest, with a very notable exception being Norman's The Concept, arguably Teenage Fan Club's defining moment, all of their best songs were written by Jerry. And his absence is very noticeable on Endless Arcade. Thankfully, the record isn't a complete wash, as Raymond McGinley is still one of my favorite guitarists, and his playing here is top-notch, as always. My number one favorite guitarist, however, might be Greg Edwards, and his band Failure dropped their new record, Wild Type Droid, in December, just in time to make my list. Failure frontman Ken Andrews recorded and mixed it, of course, seeing as he's the best engineer in rock music. Like with Butch Vig and Garbage, you can always expect a Ken Andrews Failure record to traverse huge sonic terrain. This is their sixth LP overall, the third since reforming after a hiatus that lasted almost 20 years, but they picked up right where they left off in 2015 with The Heart is a Monster, and seem as creatively energized as ever. Of course, it's not like Greg or Ken lost any momentum during their time away from failure. Greg was busy with the criminally underrated Auto Lux, uh, while Ken formed several different projects including On and Year of the Rabbit and mixed records for the likes of Jimmy Eat World, Paramore, and Under Oath, just to name a few. Oh, and in the mid-aughts, he mixed a couple of records for Starflyer 59, another legacy act we'll discuss a little later. Post-hardcore legends Quicksand are enjoying a career renaissance similar to that of Failures. They took a break for about 20 years and came back with two of their finest records, 2017's Interiors and now 2021's 
Distant Populations, both produced by Will Yip, another guy who's able to capture the most thrilling performances from bands and turn them into incredibly dynamic rock records. Rounding out the Legacy Acts category are really solid new efforts from the aforementioned Starflyer 59, as well as Low and They Might Be Giants. I'll tell you right now, objectivity be damned, one of these made my top five. And it isn't They Might Be Giants, but I should note that overall, even though I'm willing to admit that they're way past their prime. They're still my favorite band of all time, and I'll always love everything they do. So real quick, before we get into some of the newer artists that I've had in heavy rotation lately, there are a few acts worth mentioning that I don't quite consider part of the legacy category yet, but have nonetheless been plugging away for at least a decade or so. I have to start with my friend Lyle Kane. If you've been following this channel, you saw my interview with him late last year, and you know that in certain LA area music circles, he's been a well-respected songwriter and guitarist for a long time. Uh, still, it wasn't until 2021 that we finally got the proper debut recordings from Lyle as a solo artist. And whether it was out of an abundance of creative inspiration or just an effort to make up for lost time, he delivered not one, but two LPs, Evans and Ethereal Blues Continuum and Thinking Outside the Bollocks. Both are brilliant, really showcasing his gift for melody and exceptional guitar chops. It's impossible to pick just one, and I really consider them to be kind of companion pieces to one another, but this amazing power ballad from the former might be my favorite moment. Then we've got new records from The War on Drugs and The Killers. I realize I've made a couple of references to dad rock already, and these are very much in that same vein. But I am well into my 30s now, and I'm just living my truth, okay? Anyway, both acts continue to deliver anthemic guitar music with totally earnest Heartland synth vibes a la mid-80s Springsteen. And I really gotta hand it to The Killers here. They're an admittedly polarizing band. I happen to believe they might be the last great arena rock band. And certainly, they're disciples of the boss. They came back less than a year after the kinda uninspired imploding the Mirage and surprised everyone by releasing what's essentially their Nebraska. Pressure Machine is their first concept record, it's their most understated record, and I think it's their best record since probably Day and Age, which was like 2008. It was a risky, unexpected move and it paid off, at least as far as this fan's concerned. Now, despite technically being a new act, I'll get Silk Sonic out of the way before we go any further. Bruno Mars and Anderson Pock have both been at it for a while. Uh, Bruno is really the only bona fide pop star on my list. This is probably the most commercially successful record on my list. What can I say? You've all probably heard it, and it's fucking great. A bit of a novelty, sure, the sound is very deliberately and derivatively retro, but it's just done so well. I love it. But anyway, I'm pleased to say that the majority of my list is populated by newer acts. Some are only a couple of records into their careers, some made their debut in 2021. I may not be as close to the cutting edge as I used to be, and I usually do some serious catching up over the last two or three months of every year, but I always, invariably, find something totally new, or at least new to me, that completely blows my mind. 
2021 was no exception. And considering the very fluid states of and thin line between pop and indie music, as well as the evolution of my own personal taste, I'm certainly not as turned on by guitar bands as I used to be. That said, there were a refreshing amount of guitar-based acts who released very exciting records in 2021. Among them were impressive debut LPs from snotty, jittery post-punks Fake Fruit and Geese, and quite a few second efforts by bands that successfully avoided the sophomore slump, including uh, Palm Poco from Norway, uh, Amel and the Sniffers from Australia, who, if you're like me, you'll find very appealing if you think someone like Courtney Barnett seems cool and all, but her music is just a bit of a snooze fest. Webbed Wing is a band from Philadelphia who put out their second record in 2021 called What's So Fucking Funny, a title that's pretty hilarious when coupled with the album art. Not so much without it. But the music is very enjoyable. Reviews I've read compare them favorably to the Lemonheads and yes, even my beloved teenage fan club. I also hear some Matthew Sweet and of course a little Weezer in there. Uh, basically, if you loved the 90s power pop revival acts who worshipped Big Star and the replacements, you're gonna love this. They affectionately nail that sound. Every song has a killer hook and sonically, the record sounds great. Quicksand producer Will Yip was actually behind the boards on this one too. There's plenty of great tracks to choose from that would sound right at home next to your favorite super drag record, but I want to play a bit of this song called For Real because it sounds like My Own Worst Enemy by Lit and I don't know, I just find that amusing. Let's see, more guitar stuff. Um, the Dirty Nil might be the best power trio working today, and their new record, the second on my list to contain the F word in its title, by the way, is the best pop punk record in recent memory. And I don't mean that in the Machine Gun Kelly sense of the phrase. No disrespect. Uh, I don't know what the fuck he's doing, but it definitely ain't pop punk. The new record from Trace Mountain scratches the same itch as The War on Drugs, albeit with a little more subtlety and Elliot Smith-esque melancholy. Kiwi Jr. makes bookish, smart-ass garage rock that's a lot more sophisticated than it seems at first. Penelope Isles might be my favorite new shoegaze band, drawing fewer influences from the genre's most frequently name-checked, you know, like Mount Rushmore acts. They seem to favor the dreamy, jangly psych-pop of the Boo Radleys and the Ocean Blue over My Bloody Valentine's Titanic swirling distortion and slow dives moody ambience. Which Way to Happy is an immensely enjoyable listen throughout, but the ooh-la-la-las at the end of track three was the moment that really hooked me.
Thirstier by Torres is a record that defies genre. It's super ambitious, bizarre, and whimsical, and honestly, I think she's kind of beating St. Vincent at her own game here. Annie is absurdly talented, of course, don't get me wrong, but tends to prioritize slick stylization over hooks sometimes. The songs on Thirstier are wildly eclectic and densely produced, and every song is a total earworm. Thirstier is nicely bookended by opening and closing tracks Are You Sleepwalking and Keep the Devil Out, the soundtracks to surreal grunge dystopias recalling Helium or That Dog at their most bombastic. In between, we're treated to an irresistible slice of new wave power pop on track two, Don't Go Putting Wishes in My Head, only for Torres to then make another sudden shift to quasi-freak folk on Constant Tomorrowland, a song that, if you'd told me it was an Animal Collective cover, I'd totally believe you. There's some straight-up synth pop on the latter half of the record in the form of Kiss the Corners. Perhaps my favorite thing about Torres, though, is that I honestly can't tell when she's being ironic or completely earnest. This record is wacky. And again, my favorite band of all time is They Might Be Giants. I have absolutely no problem with Wacky, but I also love the sincere anthemic arena rock of The Killers. And in moments like title track and album centerpiece Thirstier, Torres sounds like Brandon Flowers is coaching her to swing for the rafters. If anything, just the marvelous tone of her voice, which I suspect most listeners will either love or hate, is enough to prove that there's a fine line between sincere and wacky. Or she's just sincerely wacky, I don't know. But whatever the case, I can't wait to hear what Torres does next. Liz Cooper might have been dismissed as another quirky indie folk also ran after one decent but forgettable LP with her previous backing band, The Stampede. And Jesus Christ, does Liz Cooper and The Stampede sound like it came from an online indie folk band name generator or what? Their sole LP, 2018's Window Flowers, was by no means a bad record. Just a sort of toothless blend of vaguely retro-sounding blues rock and alt-country for people who perhaps find Jenny Lewis too heavy, Nico Case too avant-garde, and Mayo too spicy. At the end of the day, there was just little to distinguish Window Flowers from the nauseatingly precious sound of She and Him. But thankfully on Hot Sass, Liz Cooper's proper solo debut without the stampede, she re-emerges as this uh, twangy art rock weirdo, commanding your attention with esoteric lyrics delivered by her distinctly haunting voice that falls somewhere between Leslie Feist and Joanna Newsom. Gorgeous instrumental compositions provide occasional interludes that add to the experimental nature of this record, further distancing itself from the stampede. Hot Sass isn't a complete departure from Window Flowers, but rather an impressive evolution that builds upon a similar foundation and then proceeds to totally deconstruct and revitalize it. Liz Cooper has incredible potential as a songwriter, and Hot Sass is a defiant mission statement, clearly setting her apart from many of her peers. Waxahachie is the only other recent artist I can think of that sort of exists in this same sphere. It sounds wholly vintage and refreshingly current all at once with warped modern twists on the campy countrypolitan of Barbara Mandrell and the cowboy psychedelia of Lee Hazelwood.
Rounding out the more guitar-oriented stuff on my list is Magic Mirror, the latest full-length LP from recent Liz Cooper tourmate Pearl Charles. This is another perfectly executed throwback record, maybe not quite to the degree of Silk Sonic, but it does a fine job of tracing the evolution of the California sound, from Laurel Canyon post-folk to high desert Americana to cocaine-fueled soft rock. To give you a better idea, there's a classic hit song from 1978 called Lotta Love. You probably know it. It was written by Neil Young, made famous by Nicolette Larson. It was pretty much the apex of the sound I'm describing, and clearly it was the template on which Magic Mirror is based. If you can make it past Only For Tonight, the slightly too saccharine opening track that blatantly rips off ABBA's Dancing Queen, I mean right down to the lilting piano chords and ghost notes on the snare drum, if you can make it past that, you'll be handsomely rewarded, I promise. Okay, now that that's out of the way, as a frustrated, failed rock musician, uh, I'm really excited to talk about the stuff that's piqued my interest the most in recent years. Pop and dance music with lots of synthesizers. Again, we've got a mix of promising debuts, like Carolyn Kingsbury's synthwave epic Heaven's Just a Flight, which sounds like the soundtrack for a teen drama set in the 80s, uh, to impressive sophomore efforts including Arena from Pixel Grip, a trio from right here in Chicago, keeping the spirit of electro clash and electronic body music alive, two subgenres about due for full-blown revivals of their own. Most importantly, for the second year in a row, a record from this category is claiming the number one spot on my list. Before we get to all that though, I do want to take a quick moment now to highlight once again my favorite record of 2020, uh, which remained in heavy rotation in 2021 as well. It's Jesse Ware's new disco masterpiece, What's Your Pleasure? For well over a decade now, pop and dance music has experienced a surge of creativity and indeed credibility that hasn't really existed since the 80s, or at the very latest, maybe Bjork's first two solo records in the mid-90s, you know, before she started making music exclusively for extraterrestrials. This is thanks in large part, of course, to boundary-pushing post-9-11 work by artists like The Knife and Robin, uh, both from Sweden, by the way. Must be something in the water over there. But the former's heartbeats really sort of teed things up, and the latter's dancing on my own, of course, just completely knocked it out of the park. A lot of the credit also goes to super producers and personal heroes of mine like Greg Kirsten, Ariel Reichstad, James Ford, all of whom have alt-rock backgrounds but went on to produce some of the most important, innovative pop records of the last decade plus. I mean, just between the three of them, you've got landmark records by Adele, Tegan and Sarah, Carly Rae Jepsen, Charlie XCX, Sia, Maggie Rogers, Peaches, Kylie Minogue, and indeed, Jesse Ware. What's your pleasure being a James Ford production? And now I think one of the acts most effectively and enthusiastically carrying this torch is Magdalena Bay, two former prog rock whiz kids from LA that decided to try their hand at pop music. Their new record, Mercurial World, dropped in October of 2021, and I didn't hear it until a friend recommended it to me about a month later. Despite being a late entry on my list, I must have revisited it uh, close to a dozen times in the weeks following that first listen, and it quickly became a favorite. Magdalena Bay's closest contemporary, or at least the first one that came to my mind, is probably Caroline Polachek. She's certainly been raising the bar for a slick, sophisticated, experimental pop music since she first started making records with her former band, Chairlift, almost 15 years ago. Caroline's solo stuff has continued this tradition and continues to take pop music to extraordinary new heights, challenging our perception of the genre without compromising its broad appeal. Magdalena Bay have released a handful of singles and EPs over the past few years, but Mercurial World is their first proper LP, and they've already mastered the art form. I'm not certain it's intended to be a strict concept record per se, and it's indeed got some killer singles on it, but it still encourages listening from beginning to end, or rather from the end to the beginning. Just trust me, this is all explained in a very existential way on track one. There are so many brilliant moments throughout, and of course, like all budding pop stars in this digital age, they're also multimedia performance artists, so take some time to watch their music videos too. Still, if there's one moment that sums up everything they've done up until this point, all of the tension and excitement their music brings, it really culminates with this very satisfying beat drop at the end of Mercurial World's penultimate track, Dreamcatching.
switching gears now slightly from electronic music that stimulates the connection between your head and your hips to electronic music for those more intimate moments between your head and your heart. Synth pop that's maybe intended more for crying than dancing, though if mid-year era Ultravox taught us anything, uh, it's that there's nothing wrong with dancing with tears in your eyes. A Way Forward, the excellent sophomore effort from Brooklyn synth pop trio Nation of Language, draws clear influences from mid-year and many of his peers. The most obvious, as far as I can tell, is orchestral maneuvers in the dark. Uh, specifically, their first three or four records before they became bona fide top 40 hit makers here in the U.S. Additionally, Nation of Language have a real fondness for that slightly more stoic, motoric, electro-pop of Kraftwerk, and repetitive droning arpeggios that could have been lifted from one of Philip Glass's minimalist compositions. A Way Forward just completely washes over me every time I listen, and by the end of gorgeous album closer, they're beckoning. I'm in an almost meditative state that I wish could just last forever. though, all good things must come to an end, and that includes this video. But before I reveal my number one favorite album of 2021, let's do a quick review and assemble our top 10. Here we go. Number 10, Pom Poco, Cheater. Number 9, Liz Cooper, Hot Sass. 8, Billy Bragg, The Million Things That Never Happened. 7. The Killers, Pressure Machine 6. Magdalena Bay, Mercurial World 5. Torres, Thirstier 4. Webbed Wing, What's So Fucking Funny 3. Nation of Language, A Way Forward Coming in at number 2, we've got Starflyer 59 Okay, let's pause right here because I gotta show some love for Starflyer. One of my legacy acts that will always get a free pass, yes, but honestly, Jason Martin, that's Starflyer 59's true identity. His discography is 16 full-length LPs deep. There's never been any more than three years between them. Prior to 2013's I Am a CEO, it was only one or two years between releases. His music has evolved significantly through his career while still retaining a sort of signature sound, and the quality is just as good, if not better, than it's ever been. Personally, I think his newest record, Vanity, is his best since the back-to-back -back masterpieces Leave Here a Stranger and Old. Uh, those came out back in 01 and 03 respectively. Jason's been quietly and consistently making some of my favorite rock records for over 25 years. Initially catching the very tail end of the first shoegaze wave, uh, he then shifted to more dreamy indie pop and slowcore, even flirted with the post-punk revival a bit before eventually deciding to ditch any prior pretense almost entirely and focus on crafting straight-up, world-class, capital-I indie rock that relies on the strength of his universal everyman style of songwriting more than his allegiance to any particular subgenre. How has Jason maintained this level of quality for so long? Well, I think the answer is simple. He grew into it. Since Starflyer's genesis, there's always been a central recurring theme of aging, watching the people you love leave you and the world around you change, and just feeling utterly powerless to do anything about it. In his early 20s, this may have been a bit disingenuous, but now, well into middle age, there's an authenticity to it that gives the songs this extra emotional resonance. And for sad bastards like me who've grown up with his music, Jason speaks to us on a level few songwriters can. Not to mention, I think the production and performances on Starflyer Records are extremely underrated. Just so clean and clear and brilliant in their simplicity, like somber lullabies played with these slowed down, almost surf rock guitar leads. 
these new wavy synth pads, a really solid, punchy rhythm section, and of course, Pitch Perfect Melodies, sung by Jason in his now trademark smoky baritone. Whether it was by choice or out of necessity, I don't know, but sometime in the early aughts, his voice went down like a full octave, and he really made it work to his advantage. Guess what? It didn't take well So be a rock Maybe you're just passing through Jason Martin hasn't achieved quite the same level of success or even indie cred as his peers. Uh, you could probably include acts like Built to Spill and Pedro the Lion among Starflyer's contemporaries. And indeed, the latter's David Bazan is one of Jason's friends and occasional musical collaborators. Galaxy 500 are likely among his influences. And whether they really realize it or not, the National are a pretty good example of a band that's followed in his footsteps. Yet, Starflyer's following is one of the more modest cults in rock and roll. This is due in part to the fact that these other artists never had to shake the not entirely accurate quasi-Christian rock tag that's dogged Jason for much of his career, but we don't really have time to get into that right now. Whatever the case, Jason certainly seems at peace with it, and anyone who knows me knows I love a good underdog story, and this latest chapter, Vanity, will certainly go down as one of his career highlights. possibly beat out Starflyer 59, one of my all-time favorite legacy acts, still at the top of their game. Who could claim the number one spot over them on my list of the best albums of 2021? Whoever it is, they would have had to meet a lot of criteria, check a lot of boxes. At this point, you should have a pretty good idea of what makes me tick. And this band did it by delivering an absolutely 10 out of 10 perfect pop record. It's only their second ever and was actually my first introduction to their music. Every song has a relentlessly catchy, memorable hook, the playing is tight, the production is bright, there isn't a note out of place, and the vocal performance is dynamic and impassioned without being over the top. It's also derivative as fuck. But we've already established that that's not necessarily a bad thing, as long as it's done well. If the internet's taught us anything, it's that nostalgia sells, and baby, in 2021, I was buying what Pale Waves were selling.
Who Am I is the second LP from this English quartet, and as you might have noticed from that clip of Easy, one of the album's best singles, they're not fucking around. Apparently, we're done reviving the 80s and 90s. It's been almost 20 years now since the debut of artists like Michelle Branch and Avril Lavigne, and Pale Waves wants you to know that it's safe to admit you love that stuff now. And just look at this cover art again. I mean, I really respect the commitment, I do. And it's all here. They've got their complicated. They've got their skater boy. You don't know me, you don't know me, you don't know me, and I'll do whatever I want to, cause I'm a psycho, but that's fine though, so you better get out of my way, I'll be your biggest mistake, if you keep passing that way. They've got their I'm with you. One listen to the music and it's immediately apparent that they're completely earnest about it. That's probably part of the appeal of hearkening back to this very specific era of edgier, young adult alternative pop. For one thing, Pale Waves singer and guitarist Heather Baron Gracie was born in 1995. I assume the rest of the band is around the same age, so already it's a no-brainer. They grew up with this stuff. Think about how liberating that kind of music must have been in 2002, a sincere, angsty hybrid of pop and rock when each of those genres were pivoting hard in opposite directions. I'll admit it, I played the hell out of The Spirit Room by Michelle Branch. I love that record, and it was a refreshing change of pace in an especially post-ironic, post-9-11 world. Yes, I believe that's the second reference to 9-11 I've made in this video. My apologies to your algorithm. But the point is, all I wanted to do was sing the hooks from everywhere and all you wanted at the top of my lungs without feeling embarrassed. Oh, and there's a deep cut on the spirit room called Something to Sleep To, which might be my favorite Michelle Branch song. I just, I don't understand how that wasn't a single, but we'll save that for another video. Back to Pale Waves. Their first record, 2018's My Mind Makes Noises, was a very contemporary sounding pop record, which is to say immaculately produced uh, to the point of really being a bit dull. Don't be fooled by the reviews, often tagging them as goth pop. This can be credited more to their look than their sound, if you ask me. Maybe there was a little extra chorus on the guitars, reverb on the drums, but they were certainly no Susie and the Banshees, not even Strawberry Switchblade. To a degree, that's kind of the point of acts like Pale Waves, and indeed those that laid the groundwork for their newest record. When you're just a preteen misfit, you may not be quite ready to appreciate The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari or like Throbbing Gristle yet, but something about The Nightmare Before Christmas and Avril Lavigne resonates with you a hell of a lot more than The Backstreet Boys, or you know, whatever the equivalent of those examples would be in the 2020s. Following e-girls and e-boys on TikTok, I guess? All media's kind of been distilled down to that. Whatever the case, you're well on your way. All of a sudden, you've got a scene, you've got heroes, you've got a solid foundation for eventually, hopefully, developing your own unique taste and personality. It's a palatable introduction to counterculture that won't upset your parents. Still, while you can focus group, fabricate, and refine the image to death, you're nothing without exceptionally well-written pop songs. And that's the difference between Pale Wave's new record and their first. It's the difference between Michelle Branch and, like, Hoku. One's got the songs, the other's just... Don Ho's daughter. No, really, look it up. So yeah, Pale Waves are still as derivative as ever, but except for some extra sparkly synths here and there, uh, they've wisely dialed back the 80s motif. And anyone who knows me knows I adore the music of the 80s. It's by far my favorite decade, but on My Mind Makes Noises, it was an affectation that put too much pressure on Heather Baron Gracie to be ultra hip, thereby limiting her pop potential. Now, choosing instead to explore the pop music of the early aughts, an era I believe she genuinely loves, and indulge in all the cliches that come with it, she seems empowered to write more melodically, emotionally, and unapologetically. Production-wise, they thankfully refrained from including any spurious turntable scratches. Uh, that's one technique that's just too anachronistic and absurd for a comeback. 
I'll bet they considered it though. So now the question is, in a few years, will Who Am I be remembered as the moment that kickstarted a revival? or just a misguided novelty record exploiting our nostalgia. Current reviews are mixed, and maybe I'm being short-sighted by giving it the top spot on my list. Does it really have a shelf life that can compete with the integrity of an act like Starflyer 59? Does it provide a masterclass in pop history the way Jesse Ware's What's Your Pleasure did with its flawless collage of disco, R&B, hip-hop, and house music? Maybe not. To what extent is it even that retro? Did this sound really ever go away, or can you draw a straight line from Alanis Morissette to Natalie Imbruglia to Kelly Clarkson to Taylor Swift to Olivia Rodrigo? A key difference with those artists was their deliberate and successful attempts to appeal to a broader mainstream audience. Now, it's not like Avril Lavigne was toiling away in obscurity, of course, but I do think perhaps Who Am I's most retro quality stems from Pale Wave's return to the concept of projecting this more classic alternative image. Like Avril before them, they're using this technique to minimize the obligation to fully conform to contemporary pop trends. Though these days, like I mentioned earlier, the line between pop and indie is blurrier than ever. You could go back and just as easily extend a family tree branch from Alanis to Fiona Apple to Regina Spector to Angel Olsen up to Phoebe Bridgers. I keep mentioning Alanis as this sort of patient zero, by the way, not because there weren't artists before her blending slick pop and moody rock elements, there certainly were, but those styles became all but mutually exclusive in the immediate post-grunge aftermath. Then Jagged Little Pill came along, and it was this monumental reminder of their combined commercial appeal when done properly, and it marked a pretty significant sea change for all songwriters, not just women, who didn't necessarily want to pick a side. Which brings us to today, and this wonderful record by Pale Waves, one that may seem disposable on the surface, but, as I hope I've just convinced you, could be considered the product of a pretty significant evolution in pop, and indeed rock music. All all I know is I had a visceral reaction to this record, and it's the one I was compelled to listen to the most in 2021 by far. And what can I say? I'm finally at a point in my life where what's cool and what I genuinely enjoy still occasionally intersect, but it's not a requirement anymore. I'm free to just like what I like, and that's really all that matters. I probably haven't been able to say that and really mean it for almost 20 years, but Who Am I helped me remember who I was at a more honest, innocent time. Nobody knows